You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, good morning, my name's Stuart and I'm reading the th- third reading this morning. Um, it's from the book of Luke, again, we're following on from the last one. It's from chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And it's on page 713 of the Pew Bible, or behind me, or on your phone. So Luke chapter 1, 39 to 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promise to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, holy in his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he had promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. It's great to have uh, so many people together to celebrate Christmas together. I hope you've had a great time already. And I actually wanted to start this morning by asking you to to turn perhaps to the people you were just chatting to. Uh, Maybe you want to, or or to someone else, someone nearby, ask them the question, what is your favourite Christmas album of all time? We're talking music albums, not photo albums. Right, so your favourite Christmas album of all time. Just take a minute to chat to someone nearby. Okay. Let's uh, bring it back together. can hear lots of uh, conversations were had. I'm wondering, is anyone brave enough to yell out? Uh, you really need to project, especially if you're at the back. What is your favourite Christmas album of all time? Sorry? Oh, I thought I heard someone yell out. Anyone got one? Christmas carols, yes. Chipmunks. Oh, great. Anyone else? Favourite Christmas albums? I'm a big fan of uh, Sufjan Stevens' Songs of Christmas. It's maybe a little bit niche, but uh, you can look it up later on. Um, Sufjan Stevens' Songs of Christmas. Any others that someone wants to yell out? 
Yep, cool. Another one for me, I, I, I'm a kind of somewhat former trumpet player, although I was playing some trumpet yesterday. Uh, a big fan of James Morrison's Christmas Collection. Oh, that's James Morrison, the, the jazz musician, not James Morrison, the other guy. You know, he sang that song, You're Beautiful. I wasn't a, a big fan of that one. Uh, but James Morrison, the jazz musician, uh, Christmas Collection, I thoroughly recommend... What is your favourite Christmas album of all time? We started uh, chatting about that because this Christmas here at DPC, we're looking at what you might call Luke's Christmas album. That's the, the Gospel of Luke in the Bible, his biography, his record of Jesus' life. Uh, and one of the features of Luke's biography of Jesus' life is that he starts uh, in the opening chapters, in the context of all the narratives about Jesus' birth, he includes uh, three or four different songs. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Mary's song uh, that Stuart just read out. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to look at uh, Zechariah's song. And then on Christmas Eve, Adam's going to take us through Simeon's song. Uh, these are three songs uh, that you could call Luke's Christmas album, his Luke's big family Christmas album, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I want to suggest uh, this Christmas uh, that if you really tune in to this Christmas album, it has the kind of words that if you understand their meaning and implications, not just for your life, but for the world around us, it will change your life and this world forever. That's a big claim. Like some albums, you know, you, you could listen to them and they wouldn't impact you at all. Other albums you listen to and you're like, man, that album's really changed my life. We want to suggest that that's what Luke's Christmas album is like. So let's pray, and then we're going to take a look at Mary's song, the first song in this album. Let's take a look. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, thank you for this time we can spend together this morning. Uh, we pray that as we uh, listen in to Mary's song here in Luke's Christmas album, uh, that you might really speak to us uh, and um, encourage us and perhaps even challenge our thinking about Christmas. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so to help us kind of uh, engage with what I consider to be the, the key idea, the big theme in Mary's song, I wanted to ask you this Christmas, who or what would you say is magnified in your life? Magnified. Uh, we, don't, we don't use that word a lot these days, do we? Magnified. But uh, as someone, if you don't know me, I've got a, a pretty bad vision impairment. Uh, I'm starting to really appreciate the benefits of being able to magnify things. You know, put a, a magnifying glass on, or onto something, and all of a sudden, it, it becomes a whole lot bigger. Right? It's magnified. It, it, it actually appears way bigger than it actually is. So this Christmas, who or what would you say is magnified in your life? And maybe it's the thought of doing more Christmas shopping. You, know, you just can't face another trip to Northland. Maybe it's the thought of seeing that particular friend or family member that you've successfully avoided all year and the anxiety's building up, there's a knot in your stomach every time you contemplate seeing them at Christmas lunch. Speaking of Christmas lunch, maybe that's what's magnified. You know, you put your hand up to host this year, which you're really starting to regret. You know that this person likes this, this person's got that allergy, this person's got this, you know, preference, and you're like, how can I possibly dish something up that's going to please everyone? It's magnified in your life, in your vision. And maybe it's a particular work project. You're desperately trying to get it done before the office shuts down over the Christmas New Year break. 
What is it that is magnified in your life this Christmas? What is it that maybe seems just a little bit bigger than it actually is? Kind of crowding out other things in your life, maybe even excluding other things. It kind of looms large in your vision. I started by asking this question, uh, who or what is magnified? Because you notice in verse 46, Mary starts her song by saying, my soul glorifies the Lord. That word glorifies is sometimes translated as magnifies. It kind of means to make something great, to enlarge something. It's why this song of Mary's is sometimes called, you might have heard it, sometimes called the Magnificat. Because it's a, a song in which Mary wants to make God really big. She wants to enlarge God, and not just to say God is really big in my life, but to say he should kind of be really big in your life too. Mary magnifies God, and not just any God. Mary magnifies the God who comes in Jesus at Christmas. Remember, Mary's singing this song in the context of finding out that she's fallen pregnant with Jesus, and she'll soon give birth to him. Mary magnifies the God who comes in Christ at Christmas uh, and she does that for uh, two main reasons. Uh, First, because the God who comes in Christ has turned her life right side up. I like it if you were to pick up a a cup of spilt milk and turn it up the right way. Uh, But second, because Mary knows that in the end, this God who has come in Christ will turn the whole world right side up. So let's take a look at Mary's song. First, in verses 46 to 49, we have that first idea. Mary magnifies God because she knows really personally that God has turned her life right side up. He's done that first in verses 46 and 47 by noticing her and saving her. Noticing her and saving her. Take a look at from verse 46. Mary says, My soul uh, glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. And notice that Mary's desire to magnify God, it's not some superficial thing. It's not just lip service. It's not going through the motions of religion. Right? Where does she magnify God from? From her soul from her spirit. It's coming from the very core of who she is. She really, really means it. And at the end of verse 47, Mary kind of gives us a hint of the the big picture reason for why she's magnifying God, why she is wanting to make God large and great. She says uh, that God is my saviour, my saviour. By saying that God's her saviour, well, what's Mary telling us about the God that she knows? Well, first, she's telling us that the God that she knows is not some impersonal cosmic force, some power that binds together the entire universe. That's not Mary's understanding of God. The God that she knows is a personal God, a God she can actually relate to as her saviour. The fact that she calls God her saviour also tells us that Mary, despite being a wonderful and godly woman, does not consider herself to be perfect or sinless. 
And there are some people who believe that. For example, uh, I remember years ago I was working in a school holiday kind of uh, for a company where people came in and picked up their school books and their stationery and so on for the new year. Uh, maybe they don't do that anymore, just give the students an iPad or something. But uh, we used to have these things called books and paper and stationery. And, um, and I worked for a, and, and I worked uh, one day, actually, in fact, two whole days at a school over in Fitzroy called the Academy of Mary Immaculate. Well, what's that about? It's saying that uh, certain people believe that when Mary uh, became pregnant with Jesus, she was perfect and pure and immaculate, without sin. Now, don't get me wrong, Mary is a wonderful woman. She's a great example to us of faith and humility and service. We should look at her and kind of uh, really admire her. But clearly, she doesn't consider herself to be perfect or immaculate. But she knows that she needs to be saved by God, just like the rest of us, who are weak and broken and sinful human beings. She says, I glorify God, my saviour. Mary continues, kind of unpacking exactly how it is that God has saved her. What has God done? Notice in verse 48, she says, for God, my saviour, for because... God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary's saying that when other people have ignored me, when other people have turned away from me, when other people didn't give me the time of day, God, my saviour, has noticed me. He's acknowledged me. He's turned his eyes towards me. This is really a wonderful truth, isn't it? Uh, Mary, uh, you think about Mary's kind of pretty low social position. Like, I'm not judging her, it's just the, the reality was uh, she's a young woman. Uh, women were considered to be second-class citizens uh, in Jewish culture of the first century and Greco-Roman culture. Uh, she was very poor. And she's just fallen pregnant outside of marriage. We heard that in our first Bible reading this morning from Matthew chapter 1. And there was a whole bunch of shame and disgrace connected with that. And so Mary was a person of a very low social position, the sort of person that uh, other people in, a, in her community would have considered her to be a bit of an outcast when they were walking down the street. Uh, they would have tried to avoid making eye contact with Mary. Uh, but Mary says, God, my saviour, has never treated me like that. God, my saviour, has always been mindful of me. He's always turned his eyes towards me. He's always acknowledged me and noticed me. And this is something all of us long for, isn't it? To be noticed, to be acknowledged. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, there's a, a homeless man. His name's Fred, uh, who often sleeps at the end of our street. Uh, we live just kind of near High Street. He often sleeps on the corner near Foodworks, uh, sometimes on the other corner near the pet shop. He has his dog, Harvey, and they sleep there. Uh, he naturally is asking for some money and such things. As a homeless man, you, you can imagine Fred, he, um, he hasn't washed very often. He smells quite a bit. He doesn't look that great. Most people know that he's after some money from them, and so what do they do? They try to walk past him as quickly as possible and avoid making eye contact. And to be honest, I've done that sometimes as well when I've been in a hurry to, to get somewhere and I don't have time for him. 
When you think about it, I'm not saying we, we, we ought to stop for every person on the side of this path, but it is pretty dehumanising, isn't it? To just not acknowledge the existence of another human being. To not turn your eyes towards them and notice them and recognise them. And Mary's saying that the God who comes in Christ at Christmas never does that. He always turns his eyes even to those towards, even to those who are social outcasts, to those on the margins. You only have to read the, the rest of Luke's gospel to see that. You should do that later on and see how Jesus relates to, to people on the fringes of society, to, to people that no one else would give the time of day and let Jesus, and yet Jesus reaches out to them and he notices them and he acknowledges them, he includes them, and he treats them with the utmost dignity and respect. This is why Mary's saying God is great. The God who comes in Christ ought to be magnified for he has noticed me. He has saved me. And so at the end of verse 48, even though uh, Mary is being uh, ignored and rejected uh, by many people... Oh, wait a second, have I... Uh... Yeah, no, yeah, at the end of verse 48, she ignored, uh, she's been ignored and rejected by lots of people in her community. Uh, she's not, um, you know, that'd be easy to bring you to a place where you're full of self-pity, where you're angry and frustrated with God, kind of shaking your fist at God, saying, I, I thought I deserved better than this. Like that, that would be natural. And yet Mary says, I consider myself to be God's servant. How is that possible? To be rejected and ignored by so many people? Well, it's possible because in Mary's life, God is really, really big and therefore the opinions of other people are in their rightful place. It's just less important for her to be included and acknowledged by everyone in her community because she knows that God, her saviour, has been mindful of her. And so she's a humble servant of the Lord, ready to be used by him in whatever way would magnify his name. This is the, the first reason why Mary magnifies the God who comes in Christ, because he notices her uh, and saves her despite her lowly position. The, the second reason uh, is uh, that because Mary knows that uh, God has done great things for her uh, and has blessed her. Uh, this is from the end of verse 48. And Mary says, uh, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. It's a pretty big claim of Mary's, isn't it? I remember who she is again. A poor, you know, she's probably, uh, kind of, some estimates, kind of 14 to 16 years old. A poor, young Jewish woman a bit of a social outcast, and she says, from now on, people in every generation throughout human history will call me blessed. Blessed by God. Like, that is a really audacious claim for her to make. And notice where her confidence, like her confidence in that is not in her own skills or performance, her own ability to make a name for herself. Her confidence is in the fact that the mighty one the all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, it is the mighty one who has noticed her and saved her and blessed her. 
That's why it's his blessing that is powerful and that will mean people in every generation will call her blessed. And Mary's words became true, right? They became true in some branches of the Christian church kind of really explicitly. Like if you've been to an Orthodox or a Catholic church, for example, they might even refer to Mary as Blessed Mary. Well, that's, in a sense, a fulfilment. I may not agree with all the reasons for why they do that, but it's a fulfilment of this. But even for those of us who may not call Mary Blessed Mary, we still do acknowledge that there's something incredibly special about Mary, that she really was blessed by God. We acknowledge that every time we set up a nativity scene. And it has this marginalised, poor, social outcast of a Jewish woman right there in the middle. What right does she have to be in 21st century nativity scenes? She was blessed by God. Why is she on the front cover of some Christmas cards, holding the baby Jesus or on the back of a donkey? Why is this Jewish woman so special? Because she is blessed by God. Why are we singing carols this morning, like Hark the Herald will sing later on? Uh, where we talk about Jesus being the offspring of the virgin's womb, or Silent Night that we sung all earlier, Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child. We're singing these songs because Mary's words in this song became true. The mighty God blessed her and chose her, in particular, to be the mother of our Lord Jesus. Now, that is the, the big, great thing that God has done for her. I say Mary wants everyone to see how great God is. She wants to magnify him. At the end of verse 49, she does that by magnifying what she calls his name. She says, holy is his name. God's name there is the kind of beauty of who he is, the majesty of who he is. So Mary's saying that the God who has noticed her and reached out to her saved her, blessed her, that God is a holy God, a God who is perfect and pure in every way. And yet he's been merciful to someone like her. So that's the first thing. Mary magnifies the God who comes in Christ at Christmas because she knows really deeply and personally, that he has turned her life right side up. But she's not just kind of limited to her own experience. In the rest of her song, she says, no, no, it's not just about me. Through this child who I'm going to give birth to, God is going to turn the whole world right side up. How's he going to do that? That's in verses uh, in the rest of Mary's song. We see it in three main ways. Uh, The first way is in verses 50 and 51. Mary says God's going to set the whole world right, turning everything right side up because he's going to show mercy to those who humbly respect him and judgment to those who proudly reject him. Mercy to those who humbly respect him and judgment to those who proudly reject him. Notice verse 50, Mary says God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary knows that the God uh, who becomes one of us in Christ is a God who's overflowing with mercy. He's a God from generation to generation. Like the wells of his mercy will never run dry. 
You could be born in any generation throughout human history and he will have mercy left for you. His mercy extends to every generation and yet God does not show mercy to everyone. Mary's clear about that too. Who does he show mercy to? To those who fear him. That word fear is the, the Greek word phobos. I mention that just because it connects to our... Like we've got a word phobia, don't we? It's related to this Greek word. The, the word phobia is when we have a sort of irrational or distorted fear of something. But Mary's saying it's not irrational at all to have a fear of God. An appropriate fear. Why? Because God is holy. Could maybe explain this uh, idea of God's holiness a bit by thinking about our sun. We're not seeing a lot of the sun in today's sky. But our sun, the, the glorious light of the sun, is a wonderful and good thing, isn't it? It brings light and life to our entire planet. And yet here in Australia, we're told that if you don't have appropriate respect for the sun, you know, if you don't slip, slop, slap, if you're not sun smart the glorious light of the sun will be dangerous for you. You'll end up with you know, sunburnt or skin cancer or some other thing, right? The glorious light of the sun is good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It brings light and life like Alex was talking about in her kids' talk. And yet, if we don't have appropriate respect for the sun, it's dangerous for us. Mary knows that to be true about God's holiness God in his glorious holiness brings light and life to everyone and everything on our planet. That's a wonderful thing. And yet, if you don't appropriately fear God, as Mary says here, if you don't approach him with awe and reverence as he deserves, then God's glorious holiness will be dangerous for you, spiritually speaking. You won't, be, you won't experience his mercy and be drawn into his life-giving presence. You'll experience his judgment and you'll be scattered from his presence. That's what Mary says in verse 51. Notice Mary says, verse 51, God has performed our mighty deeds with his arm and he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. How is God going to set the world right side up through Jesus, his son? He's going to extend mercy to those who humbly respect him, to those who come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. God extends mercy to those who humbly respect him. Uh, but he will judge those who proudly reject him. A second in verse 52 uh, Mary says uh, that God will set the whole world right by lifting up those who know that they're down and bringing down those who think that they're up. Verse 52, God has brought down rulers from their thrones. What's a throne? It's a high and lofty place. There are people who think that they're up. God has brought down those uh, from their thrones but has lifted up the humble we know that in our world, if you want to go up in the eyes of the world uh, to a greater position of status and honour, uh, you have to work really hard to lift yourself up, 
to go up through the ranks. And often that's at the expense of pushing others down, either intentionally or not. Mary says that's not how it's going to work in the kingdom of the the child that I'm going to give birth to. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to go up is to humbly admit that, spiritually speaking, you're down. You're a bit of a spiritual down-and-outer. You're weak, you're frail, you're sinful, you're broken. That's what all of us are like. And the promise here is is if that we're among the humble, those who humbly come to God, admitting our sin and our brokenness, God will lift us up in his mercy and give us a status and an honour that is way beyond what we ever deserved. He will make us children of his in his family. So the God who comes in Christ at Christmas will set all things right by lifting up those who are down and bringing down those who think that they're up. Uh, The third thing, verse 53, uh, he'll set all things right in the world by filling up those who know that they're empty and emptying those who think that they're full. This is another great reversal. Mary says, verse 53, God has filled uh, the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty. Now, maybe maybe there's some kind of economic implications of this. Uh, I'm not going to kind of go into all that, but I I suspect throughout the Bible, God does have a, a particular heart and passion for those who are materially poor like Mary was. But more broadly, Mary's talking about how we approach God spiritually. She's saying if we approach God humbly admitting uh, that there's a a deep hunger in our hearts uh, that can never be satisfied apart from knowing him, uh, then God will fill us up spiritually in our soul with every good thing, satisfying the deepest desires and longings and cravings of our soul. And yet, on the other hand, if we approach God and say, God, yeah, I'm rich, you know, thanks for the offer, but I'm full. The truth is, you'll have a rich and full life in this life for a time. But Mary says, in the end, God will send you away empty. Mary magnifies the God who comes in Christ, not just because she's known him to turn her life right side up, but because she knows that ultimately he'll turn the entire world right side up. Now, I've been using this language of right side up, and just to kind of illustrate exactly what I mean by that, I thought I'd uh, kind of go back to, I mentioned earlier that I have a vision impairment. Uh, That means uh, one of the symptoms of that is that my field of vision is really quite limited, and so sometimes things kind of come out of the corner of my eye, I miss them, I bump into things, I have accidents. And uh, the other day, uh, I was walking through our kitchen at home with a, a plate of food, You know, I was really looking forward to it. Uh, Walking through, and a a child came through like some sort of human cannonball, uh, and and we bumped into one another, and the plate of food fell onto the ground. Now, let me ask you, which way did it fall? Wrong side up, right? That's the rules of these things. Like, it could fall either way, but they always fall wrong side up. And this is kind of the food splattered all over the place. Massive mess. 
And I want to suggest that when we as human beings live our lives to magnify ourselves and make ourselves great or to magnify things in God's world that aren't God, uh, to make them greater than they should be, when we live our lives like that, that's what it ends up like. A dinner plate on the floor, wrong side up, it's all just a bit of a mess. And the wonderful news of Christmas is that God does not look at us and say, ha ha, you made a big mess there. God in Christ his son enters into the mess of our lives and this world that he might turn things right side up. That he might set everything right, that he might clean up the mess. That he might set everything right in your life, everything right in this world. So let me ask you this Christmas, who or what is magnified in your life? I wonder if you might consider, if you're not already doing so, joining Mary in magnifying the God who comes in Jesus. If you do, uh, he promises to set your world, to set your life right side up. It won't be perfect. Mary's life wasn't perfect. But things just seem to fit better. He promises that ultimately he'll set the entire world right side up. Uh, And you'll see at the end of Mary's song, in verses 54 and 55... That, we can, that Mary says, hey, you can know that this is true. You can know that this isn't just a pipe dream. Why? Because look at God's track record in the past, verses 54 and 55. God has always been faithful to his people Israel, his people who he brought into being through Abraham and his descendants. He's always kept his promises to them. So you can know that he'll keep his promises to us. He kept his promises to Israel of sending Christ, his son, and he'll keep his promises to us of sending Christ, his son, again to set all things right. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of Christmas. Uh, We confess that often we do live our lives to magnify other people and things other than you. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would move us uh, about to see the glory of your son, our Lord Jesus, Uh, to see him bigger in our vision this Christmas, Uh, to see how wonderful he is in that he notices us, uh, that he acts to save us in his mercy, uh, that he blesses us, uh, and that he moves in to clean up the mess of our lives uh, and to set all things right in this world. Uh, Please, Father, may we join Mary this Christmas in magnifying you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.